I'll read the whole of chapters 8 and 9 for us. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. 
And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of God, of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Revelation chapter 10. We've had the first six trumpets and now there's a sort of an interlude and then we'll see the seventh. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice From heaven, saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpets call, sorry, in the days of the trumpet call, to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise, measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, some of the peoples and the tribes and languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, there we go. What do you make of that? Let's ask for God's help as we look at his word tonight. Father, we we praise you for these visions that John received, and we ask for your Spirit's help now that we would understand their meaning and understand their meaning for us in our lives. Lord, please would you shape us by your word tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I was at university, I I remember a man, we met him, he came to visit our little CU group. Um, He was at home on a break from teaching in a seminary in India. Um, He'd been out there teaching pastors, and he was saying how his seminary had been put on a top 10 hit list by Hindu extremists. And um, perversely, he was quite pleased about this, as it meant they were obviously making a bit of an impact. But obviously, also bad news. Um, Their buildings had been attacked before by people with hand grenades. And um, he told us a story I've always remembered. When he was quite newly married and his mother-in-law was out visiting them in India, there was a terrible noise and and fuss uh, in the nighttime. And he thought he woke up fearing the worst, thinking that the campus was under attack because that's what they'd been expecting but it was only an earthquake, so it was fine. And he was, um, he was very relieved that it was only an earthquake. That kind of situation, that kind of expectation, is very common for Christians around the world. And examples like that, for me, they raise two questions. First, why is there such hostility towards the Christian message? I mean, thinking of that guy, he was very mild. He was an academic. He wasn't a soldier or a politician. He was a researcher, a teacher. Um, the seminary where he was, it wasn't, I don't suppose, threatening anybody's livelihood. What was it about students in India learning Greek and Hebrew that made people so angry they wanted to kill them? 
What was it about those people learning how to preach the Bible that made those people so angry they wanted to plan and execute a terrorist attack? Why, why such a violent response as is seen all over the world? Question two, how can Christians keep going in the face of hostility like this? If people were going to throw, if it, if it was likely, if it was feared that people were going to throw hand grenades at my house, I would move house. Um, now, obviously, I understand a lot of people in the world haven't got that choice, but this guy did. He was from the southeast of England, and he could have come home. He was married. He could have come home, but he didn't want to. He wanted to stay and to keep doing his work, advancing the witness of the church in India. Why? Well, this passage that we've read from Revelation has a lot, I think, to say about those two questions. On the one hand, it shows us a world in rebellion against God and God's judgment on that world in rebellion. And on the other hand, it shows us God's love towards that world and the witness of his church calling people to turn back to God. That's what we're going to see. And my prayer this evening for us is that it will wake us up think about it, seven trumpets. That's the structure of the passage, seven trumpets. As John in his vision sees angels blowing these trumpets, that's the point of that. Wake up and see what the world is really like. Wake up to what is going on. And if you're a Christian, wake up as well to our duty of speaking up for Jesus in that world. Now, we have been working through Revelation for over the term, but we've had a few weeks off, haven't we? So just for 60 seconds, I thought it would be worth just pausing to get our bearings. What's the book about? Well, it's a series of visions that the Apostle John received from the risen Jesus. They show him the spiritual reality behind and beneath this world. It's a, it's a revelation. That's why the book is called what it's called. And it's for the benefit of suffering Christians. We've seen that. It's for Christians like John. He was in exile for his witness. He, um, in the first century, lots of Christians being violently persecuted. And John was to take these visions, write them down, and pass them on so that Christians facing opposition then would stand firm. That's what the book's about. And then where are we in the flow of it? Well, um, as Callum said, there are lots of, of sevens in the book. So first we saw seven letters from Jesus to the churches. And then we saw the seven seals on the scroll of history being opened as Jesus un unfolded God's plan for the world. And now seven trumpets. The, um, the hard thing about the book of Revelation is it's kind of getting an overall handle on how to understand it. One intuitive way of reading it is to see it as one long account, a chronological account of all of history, the time between the first coming of Jesus and his return. Um, so you have you know, the seals and then the bowls, uh, the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls, and it all builds up to Revelation 21 and 22. So it's a chronological account of history. And that, that's a common way of understanding it. And so you, you try to kind of pinpoint where we are and map the things described in this book onto world history and say, where are we? And maybe, I don't know, if the beast in chapter 13 was the USSR or Hitler, then maybe we're in chapter 14 and try and pinpoint our own location like that in this chronological sweep. I think that's not right. Uh, I think that, that 
That's not the right way of approaching this. The, the, the big problem with that is that as you go through the book, the end of the world keeps on happening, and it can only happen once, can't it? So in, in chapter 7, we seem to have this picture of the church at peace with God forever. And then it happens again in our passage in chapter 11. And then it happens again in chapter 19. And then it happens again at the end in 21 and 22. So I want to say that this book is not one long chronological account of the history of the last days, the period between the first and second uh, comings of the Lord Jesus. Rather, it's repeating cycles which all describe that period of time, but from a kind of like a different angle, a different angle. So our, our task is not to, to kind of to pinpoint our location in the flow of it. That's not really how this works. It's to let this account of history hit us as John sees the veil, if you like, being pulled back and God shows him what this world is really like, the spiritual impact, sorry, the um, spiritual realities underneath and behind what we can normally see. So hopefully, just looking at our section um, from chapter 11, verse 15, hopefully you can see that. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, loud voices in, in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then his people in heaven praise him. That's the end. That's what we're building up to with the seventh trumpet. And what we have before that, leading up to that, is this second picture of history and what this world will be like in the run-up to that great and final day. So what does it say? What does this section say to us about history? I think it says three things. They're on the service sheets. First, we see from trumpets one to six, God's judgment on a world in rebellion. Hopefully, as Callum read the first half of it, you got that sense from chapters eight and nine. That it's about God's judgment on a world in rebellion. Perhaps we're used to thinking of God's judgment at the end of history, you know, that final day. And that's true. The Bible talks about that. But the Bible also talks about God's judgment in history, that even now his, his justice is being poured out against the evil of our world. And here that's what we see as he gives seven trumpets to seven angels. And as each one blows the trumpet, all manner of destruction is unleashed. As we look at the first bit of it, in chapters 8 and 9, the first six trumpets, there are really two parts to, to God's judgment. First, in the first four trumpets, we see the frustration of creation. Have a look, please, from verse 6 of chapter 8. The frustration of creation. John's vision is new, but it's all painted in Old Testament colors. It's very reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. There is hail and fire and water, water turning into blood. And then there's locusts. It's, um, it's a, a pictorial way. It's not literal. It is, it's a vision. It's a pictorial way of describing the, how this world has been set out of joint by its creator, fr uh, frustrated and spoiled because of our rebellion against him. These are ideas, aren't they, that go right back to the beginning of the Bible as Adam and Eve reject God, and God says, cursed is the ground because of you. A perfect home this no longer is. This world is out of joint because of our rebellion against God. He, he has 
has made it so. And we know, don't we, the devastating consequences of that. According to the Red Cross, in 2010, 200,000 people globally killed in earthquakes and tsunamis, 50,000 killed by extreme temperatures, 8,000 killed by floods, 3,000 by landslides, 1,500 by storms. As we see the frustration of creation, what does that say to us? That there's no God? That if there is a God, he's not just? No. It tells us that God is profoundly unhappy about the way our world is, about the way we are, a world in rebellion that is under his judgment. Now, we mustn't misunderstand this. It's not that... uh, particular disasters come upon people for their particular rebellion. That, that isn't how the Bible says things work. He deals with us at the corporate level. As Jesus could say, his Father sends the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. And I take it um, storms and sickness and earthquakes, they affect the just and the unjust. It doesn't work on that one-to-one kind of a way. But these are the trumpets of warning as God's judgment is seen in the frustration of creation. The second part of this, on the one hand you have the frustration of creation, the second is the unleashing of evil. And this is really uh, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. So at the start of chapter 9, um, the bottomless pit is opened and out come these dreadful locusts. They're unleashed to harm the people of the earth. And then the sixth trumpet is blown, and it's like a a demonic cavalry regiment unleashed to kill and harm. This is not to be taken literally. Um, Some have seen, for example, in chapter 8, verse 7, doesn't that sound a bit like nuclear war? No, that's not how this works. Um, Or in chapter 9, with the locusts and don't they sound a bit like modern weaponry? Maybe, perhaps it's, it's his primitive understanding of a helicopter gunship. I think it says they have ladies' hair. I've not, I've not seen them put them on a helicopter gunship. This is it's pictorial language. It's talking about the evil that God has permitted to cause havoc and destruction on the earth. Remember that this is a vision to show us the spiritual realities behind what we can ordinarily see. It's talking about spiritual forces of evil that God has unleashed and permitted to act upon the earth. You can see that in verse 11 of chapter 9 if you look down. Who lies behind this? Satan in the end. Now, what does this all mean? Well, at one level, the Bible speaks about the activity of evil in the lives of individuals evil forces, spiritual forces, tempting, twisting people. And sometimes we read about us and we think, that's inhuman, the the evil in those actions. How could that be? And this is explaining that, that there is an evil that is inhuman at work in people's lives. Also, though, within the structures of human society, forces that seemingly in an irrational way, perpetuate war, stirring up the greed that leads to war and famine, a lust for more and more that is 
less than human, more than human. It's a terrifying thought, the evil that God has unleashed in our world. As we see these two things, it's really sobering, isn't it? The frustration of creation, evil unleashed, the judgment that God has poured out. Why? Why would he do this? A world in rebellion. Have a look, please. The final paragraph of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshipping demons and idols of silver and gold and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. That's a description of, of us, of our world, a world that has turned its back on God in dramatic ways and in more mundane ways, ignoring him. And God is judging a world that is in stubborn, persistent rebellion against him. And therefore, for us, what, what's the application of this? I think we, we need to be realistic about what our world is really like. Absolutely. Harder than we do, we need to work for peace and safety in our world. But should we expect that? Should we expect to achieve that? Ultimately, the problems of this world are spiritually, spiritually defined, and therefore the solutions also will need that spiritual element in the end. What this world needs is peace with God, which comes through knowing Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel, that God himself was willing to face his own judgment, his own wrath, so that we could be shielded from it. And so this section says to us, wake up, turn back to God, turn back to him. He's not unwilling. This judgment is not his only word. It's not his final word. Just notice that. It's a hint, but it comes persistently how there is restraint in God's judgment. So in chapter 8, the things that happen to creation, it's always a third. A third of the trees are affected, a third of the water, only a third. It's judgment, but it's restrained. Or in chapter 9, an angel has to be given the keys for the bottomless pit. And then God lays down parameters as to what these evil forces are able and unable to do. In verse five there, only for a time, a set time, set by God. God's judgment is not without restraint, and it's it's not without love. Remember what these are, trumpet calls, warnings from God to wake up to what the world is like so that men and women will turn back to him. And God's love is even clearer uh, as we move on to the second major thing that we see in this section. We've seen God's judgment on a world in rebellion. And now, as we move on to chapters 10 and 11, we see the church's witness to a world in rebellion. The um, structure of the section is the same as the seven seals. You have one, two, three, four, five, six, and then a kind of a break, which talks about the church, and then the seventh seal. That's how it was before, and that's how it is here And there are two major pictures as we have this interlude that speaks about the church. The first is of the angel um, who who ends up, there's lots of description, 
too much detail that we don't have time to go into, but he, he gives John a scroll and tells him to eat it. And it tastes sweet as honey in his mouth, but is bitter in his stomach. Now, what's all that about? It's, um, again, he's painting in Old Testament colors. This is taken from Ezekiel 2 and 3. The word of God, sweet, so sweet, and yet bitter, as he has to go out and speak it to people who don't naturally want to hear, people who will oppose him for speaking the word of God. That is this picture of John's mission as an apostle, to speak the sweet words of God, the gospel, the words of life, and yet to find that that's a bitter experience, speaking to a rebellious world. That's the first picture. The uh, second picture over in chapter 11 is that of the two witnesses. Um, Now, I'm saying this is a picture of the church and the church's mission in the world. Why is that? Why not two individuals, two kind of special preachers? Maybe it's... um, George Whitfield and Billy Graham, or something like that. Well, if you look at verse 4, it talks about these individuals as the lampstands. And that's imagery that was explained back at the end of chapter 1. Lampstand is picture in in the Revelation imagery of, uh, of the church shining as a light for God. So the two witnesses representing the church. Why are there two of them? Well, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus sent out his followers, didn't he, to, to preach in twos, or in Jewish thinking and culture. You had to have two witnesses for it to be reliable witness. Perhaps more likely, again, it's picking up Old Testament imagery from the book of Zechariah. It's two figures representing the people of God, and they speak. If you look, they speak with authority. Their message comes, and it cannot be ignored. It picks up imagery from Moses, who was able to call down plagues on Egypt when he spoke the word of God to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart was hard. Or Elijah, as he opposed King Ahab, whose heart was hard and fire fell from heaven to consume those sent against the prophet. The church speaks with authority. We remember Jesus says, anyone who rejects you rejects me. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Not that that power should go to our heads. These two witnesses speak in sackcloth, the clothes of mourning, for they speak of repentance. So they have authority, but they speak, and I think this is the main note here, they speak in the face of great opposition. If you have a look from verse 7, it talks about how the spiritual forces of evil, the beast that rose from the bottomless pit, attacks and kills these witnesses. And the people of the earth rejoice in their myrrh, leaving their bodies unburied, and they exchange Christmas presents in celebration. Now again, we need to remember that this is a pictorial vision of history, the church witnessing and persecuted for that witness. It's pictorial, but it is accurate. Um, Open Doors, it's a Christian organization that tracks persecution against Christians around the world, they estimate that that, that each month worldwide, about 300 Christians are killed for their faith. That's a number that often gets inflated just because, well, anyway, it's quite a hard figure to pin down, but Open Doors is a responsible organization that has really um, 
tried not to sensationalize thing, things, and they're saying 300 Christians a month being killed because they're Christians, specifically for their witness for Jesus. Um, every month, um, 200 buildings being seized or destroyed, church buildings being bulldozed or uh, blown up, that sort of thing. And then 800, every month, 800 violent acts, beatings, imprisonments, abductions against Christians, again, simply because of their witness for Jesus. It's the persecution of the church. We do also see, though, here God's protection. So verse 11, after three and a half days, he he reanimates, he, he rejuvenates his church to witness again for him, and he calls them up into heaven to be with him. As it were, rising from the ashes, there is victory in the end. God knows who are his. He will protect them, and he will use them. Have a look, please. Verse 13, as these two witnesses are taken up, there's an earthquake. 7,000 people are killed. But look what happens. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. It does happen. People do wake up and turn back to God and find his forgiveness and peace. So what does all this say to us? It's a lot to take in, isn't it? I think it's telling us what to expect as we go about our business of speaking for Jesus, as we try our best with that, to speak the gospel, urging people to turn back to God and receive peace with him, this is what we should expect. That, that won't, I'm afraid to say, that won't be a universally popular thing. And many of us will have found that as we've tried our best at work, at home, with our families, with friends, to, to speak about Jesus. Some people are keen to listen. Some people are um, happy enough to talk about it. Others, not at all. Not at all. It's not the way to lead an easy life to keep looking for and taking opportunities to speak about the Lord Jesus. We need to be clear about that. To say that people are, are rebels against the true king, the Lord Jesus, it's not a populist message. To say that people need to find peace with God or else face his judgment, it's not a populist message. We need to be realistic about that. But we do also need to have hope. That God is so patient with the world restraining the day when his final judgment falls so that the church has time to witness, spread the gospel all over the world. He's so patient, granting men and women repentance to turn back to him before it's too late. This passage has great hope for us in the present as we speak about the Lord Jesus. And also great hope for the future as we come to our, our final point this evening, God's victory over a world in rebellion. Have a look down, please. Verse 15, the seventh trumpet is blown and a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. To a church that is witnessing, even in the face of great opposition, this is the ultimate hope that is held out. And really, as we finish, I think this is meant to be the main thrust 
of this passage. Remember, it's, it was written for suffering Christians in the first century, written for, for John in exile, others facing um, opposition from, from Jewish people, from the Roman authorities. This is saying, keep on going until that day when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One day it'll all be over, and it'll all be worth it. Think about some of the churches we read about, if you can remember back in chapters 2 and 3. Think about the church in Smyrna. So small, so vulnerable. And John shows them this vision and says, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, that experience is normal. That, that, that is what we can expect as the people of the Lamb, the slain Lamb following Him. That is what we can expect. But it'll end well. So keep on going. That's what this passage is, is saying. I think objectively, looking at it in its context, I think that's the main point here. But what about for us? Subjectively, for us in Edinburgh, what's the big point of all this? Well, I think we have to recognize in global terms, in historical terms, that we here, if we're Christians here this evening, most of us are pretty unusual because we don't face this kind of visceral threat that John was under. We don't face the kind of threats that people face in other countries, in lots of other countries, for being known as a Christian. You know, I... Me or the other staff, the other elders, are not about to be shot on the way home and our bodies laid out in the shape of a cross, which is apparently what's been happening in the Philippines. But that's not going to happen tonight. And so what does this passion say to us in comfortable Edinburgh? Well, I think it says this. It says, wake up. To a, wake up to the fact that you are living in a world that is under judgment and that is at war, that is at, at war with itself, and at war against God and his people. And wake up to the fact that we are living in wartime, not in peacetime. And it's asking me, it's asking you if you're a Christian, have you come to terms with that? Isaac Watts was a Christian leader and a hymn writer in the early 18th century. He wrote a couple of absolute belters. He wrote, um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Yeah, like that one. Um, Joys of the World, that's another good one. He wrote another song that goes like this. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And should I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Should I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize or sail through stormy seas? Thinking personally about this passage this week and reflecting on the experience of Christians around the world, I wonder if I've really faced up to the fact that I'm living in wartime. Am I a soldier of the cross? Or am I keeping my head down? Am I witnessing, speaking for the Lord Jesus, urging people to turn back to God in spite of the risk of that, the risk to my image and popularity, the risk of what people will think of me, the cost, the real cost that many of us would face professionally or socially in doing that. Am I a soldier of the cross? Or am I, am I keeping my head down? 
and in comfortable Edinburgh, when the time comes, when verse 15 comes, how will I be able to look in the eye brothers and sisters from around the world in very different situations who stood faithfully and boldly under threats that I couldn't even imagine? Am I a soldier of the cross? Not fighting against people. That's not the kind of fighting this is, but against the evil that enslaves people and keeps them away from God. What is my life really like? Should I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through stormy seas? We need to think what it would really be like to wake up and live with a wartime attitude, remembering that this is what the world is really like. This is what's going on. We can't see it, but as Revelation pulls back the veil, it shows it to us. Let me finish. Let me leave you with a very inexact analogy. Imagine it's 1941 and you're in Paris. The Nazis are in charge. You're an ordinary French citizen. You have two choices. You can adopt a peacetime mindset and live a peacetime sort of life. You can keep your head down. Yeah, it'll all be over one day. You could possibly predict that at that point. And so what's the point? I'm just going to keep my head down. Or you can adopt a wartime attitude in life. It doesn't necessarily mean heroics. I guess for some people it would, but for a lot of people it would just mean doing your bit. In the end, verse 18 talks about the rewarding of God's servants the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. I don't think this passage is calling us all necessarily to heroics, but to do our bit, to stand up boldly when the chance arises, not to blush, not to stay silent, but to speak the warning that God has given us so that men and women might turn back to him. Let's pray. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Lord, we praise you for the prospect of that day. But Lord, please help us to realize that that day has not yet come. And please help us now, while the opportunity is still there, to speak bravely as you reach out through us to a world in rebellion, but a world that you still love. Lord, please help us to be brave, and please use us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.